Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the host of this podcast, New Books in American Studies, and I'm also the chair of the history department at John Carroll University, which is outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Today, uh, at New Books in American Studies, uh, once again, we're in history, as we usually are on this show. Uh, We're going to speak with Don Doyle about his new book that's called The Cause of All Nations, An International History of the American Civil War, which has just been published in 2015 by Basic Books. We're on a bit of a Basic Books kick here at New Books in American Studies. Uh, Don Joyle is the McCausland Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. Uh, He's the author of several books, uh, including Faulkner's County from University of North Carolina Press. I'd give you the subtitle, but I've never been able to pronounce the name of that county, so I'm not going to try now. And also a book published by University of Georgia Press called Nations Divided, America, Italy, and the Southern Question. So, uh, Don Doyle, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm really glad to be with you today. I look forward to talking about our, uh, the, the new book. Great. So you've had a, a very long and extensive career. Uh, what brought you to this book in particular? You know, uh, my... My wife tells me that my my whole law heading toward this book, but I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, <laughs> I began. I'm 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 68. I've been in this business since I was 25, and uh, uh, you know it's uh, it, it's been a it's been an interesting career. Uh, I began doing very local studies of uh, you know in the new social history of the Midwest mm-hmm. and the South and. Um, I got interested in the more international approach during my time as a Fulbright professor, and I was in Italy. And uh, I, I remember the moment when I was trying to teach the, the history that is so familiar to all of us Americans to a foreign uh, group of foreign students. And I remember one of them asking me, Professor, why is it that... <laughs> If the North, as you say, did not respect the South, why did it fight to keep it in the... Why this big war? After all, the United States is so big already. Why did it matter? And (laughs) it was one of those kind of basic (laughs) questions that a foreigner would ask that we tend to take uh, for granted. And it got me thinking about the comparative experience in, in at, right at that time this was in 1995 the northern league in italy was r- r- uh, rising as a political power and calling for the secession of the north of italy from the south and denouncing the south as criminal and backward and <laughs> um, racially inferior and everything else that they could say and so it it started me thinking comparatively and internationally. It was some time later that this story came to me about the Union approaching uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the grand hero of the Italian Risorgimento, and offered to him a command in the Union Army. And this rather bizarre little 
<laughs> anecdote about the American Civil War, as you know, becomes the first chapter of my of my mm-hmm. new book, and it was, I call it Garibaldi's Question. And Garibaldi was at this time a, just a world hero, and uh, uh, had let it be known through his lieutenants that he would be willing to raise his sword for the Union if asked. And, of course, he was part of a deep game that he was playing to try mm-hmm. to pressure the Italian government and under King Victorio Emmanuel to march on Rome and to take Rome from the Pope and to make it the capital of the new united Italian nation. Uh, but that opened up. I, we can come back to that story later, but that, yeah. <laughs> that Italian angle, that's what opened up this fascination with the war as something more than just a, uh, an intramural, an internecine uh, war between the North and South, that it, that it had some larger meaning to the world. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I began exploring just what it did mean to the rest of the world and what, uh, uh, and and, uh, and and how world opinion affected in turn mm-hmm. the war. Well, good for that student because I think that uh, maybe an American student would feel like it was a stupid question, like it was so exactly. obvious that you know, exactly. like so, such a foundational question. But those are sometimes the most interesting ones to exactly. go back to those and to revisit those. Yeah, the well, uh, for granted. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I I know that this next question is just a step more sophisticated than judging a book by its cover, which I know we're not supposed to do, but I think you can tell a lot about a book uh, by how it starts uh, when the author tries to get the reader hooked. Um, And you begin this book with two vignettes. Uh, And both are from France. Uh, There's one vignette from 1861 when a French, I think it's a government official, Try, he sort of smugly observes that, you know, in his opinion, the inevitable destruction of the American Union, which is always inevitable because all republics are going to fall apart, is underway in 1861. He, he observes this to an Ameri- a visiting American. And the book closes with an account from 1865 when a group of French students uh, risks their lives to meet with the U.S. ambassador and express their solidarity with the United States at the sad occasion of Lincoln's assassination. Um, How do those stories uh, capture what this book is about? The the idea that the American Civil War was was a trial of what everyone called the Republican experiment or the experiment in democracy uh, was widespread, and it was something that, of course, ran through Lincoln's speeches and writings. And mm-hmm. uh, but it was an idea that also was very important abroad, and it it played to this deep conservative idea that self-government just didn't work. That whatever the ideals of equality and liberty, it simply didn't work, and that. Uh, and of course, many of the conservatives were there to make sure it didn't work. But <laughs> since the since the French Revolution, one after another of these revolutionary movements to establish uh, an egalitarian democracy had failed, and it was doomed. They thought to descend into anarchy or despotism. And of course, others. Mr. Tocqueville wrote famously that democracy, for for good or ill, was going to be the future. And so there was a big debate going on uh, during this time. And in the 1860s, it really appeared to any objective viewer, including many liberal friends of democracy and republicanism, that indeed the Republican experiment was failing. And it was failing in the one place where it had succeeded, where it had proven itself as a viable and durable form of government, the great republic, the United States, as admirers called it. And so many European uh, uh, conservatives in the aristocratic governing classes in Britain, and in this case in France, really welcomed the war as proof. And uh, yes, this young, this uh, aristocrat was saying they were unnamed in the in the 
mm-hmm. New York Times account that I had. So your republic is falling apart. And, uh, uh, of course, they always will. You have to have a strong government. You have to have a king. You have to have a church to unite your nation. Otherwise, this is what you get is civil wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both uh, at the beginning of the war, uh, you made clear that both the North, the representatives, of official and unofficial, of both the North and the South, especially in Europe, and although this book is talks about all over the world, it's it's really about the the big game is really in Europe. Yes. Um, both Northern and Southern representatives struggled to explain the war. Why is this happening? Um, who had, at least in the beginning, who had the easier time of making the case for why they were fighting in Europe? You know, one of the things I, I found ironic was that the South, at the outbreak of the war, really makes a liberal argument, a liberal plea for uh, for nationalism, the right to govern oneself. It's government by the people, isn't it? Uh, um, and, mm-hmm. and they refer yeah. to a number of other revolutions that have, uh, for independence, that have that have ended in the recognition of new nations, including the United States, all of the Latin American countries. And they kind of identify with the Hungarians and with the, the Belgians had split off uh, in, uh, in established, uh, or excuse me, uh, the Netherlands in, in mm-hmm. divided. Belgium had become independent in 1830, the Greek independence movement. There were a number of others that were uh, entering the family of nations, as it were, through these movements for separation, um, usually in uh, revolutions against rebellions against empires, and so the the South was making the case in this liberal language of the right to self government, and pointing out that slavery had always existed. This was not, mm-hmm. nothing new. Mm-hmm. Many other nations had been recognized, despite the fact they had slavery. Brazil, France had slavery in 1848 when the Second Republic was recognized. Um, Britain, of course, had a long history with slavery until uh, fairly recently in its history. And so there was no disqualifying factor that because a nation subscribed to slavery and sanctioned slavery, that it would be disqualified from recognition. And fortunately for the Confederacy, Lincoln had, in his inaugural address, made it very clear that the Union's purpose was not to abolish slavery, Mm-hmm. And slavery was safe, it's where it existed. And so they could um, simply, the Confederate uh, uh, envoys could say, the North itself guarantees slavery. That's not why we're rebelling. We are rebelling in the name of self-government. And then, of course, the other argument they made was that they wanted free trade. I always right. wonder mm-hmm. where these arguments about the all of my students in South Carolina have been taught that uh, it was about <laughs> the tariff, not slavery. But that comes out of this 1861 argument that uh, that the South was trying to break off from the the North in order to establish free trade with Europe. And of course, that was a liberal idea. That was very popular in Britain, especially mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and and across Europe the idea that they could now get cotton uh, without paying very high tariffs uh, for goods that they shipped to the South will be attractive economically and also just as a principle, free trade was was popular among the liberal classes right. in Europe. Right. Uh, maybe one reason that the South, at least initially, uh, seemed to have the upper hand in terms of making its case abroad was that the South felt it it was almost under the gun. It was an existential question of uh, getting European recognition in some way. And it, this is one of those f- sort of foundational questions, but maybe you can just revisit for us uh, why it was, why the Southern leadership felt it was absolutely essential that they receive some sort of European recognition. 
there, there would later be a debate about the necessity of that. And it was just kind of back and forth question of which comes first. Do we have to establish our independence militarily on the field of battle and then get recognition? Or do we need foreign aid in order to prevail in this military contest? And so there was a during the war, there would be a kind of ongoing debate and at various times. Confederate leaders would stand and say, bring the diplomats back, let's put the money that we're spending on diplomacy into you know, guns and ammunition. And others uh, would insist that, no, we must re win recognition, that uh, we will never be able to sustain the war forever, and that Judah P. Benjamin especially realized they had to get yeah. Mm -hmm. Foreign recognition uh, in order to in order to sustain this rebellion and eventually wear the North down. So, um, but they were confident at the beginning, and they were confident in part because they had this. They didn't really have to face the, the slavery question. They kind of bracketed mm -hmm. that aside. They made the case on on um, the right of people, natural right to self government, and. Free trade, cotton against the tariff of the North. Um, but they also felt that just, especially in a democratic society, that that separation becomes a fact simply by the will of the South to put up a rebellion, to sustain a rebellion. Mm -hmm. And in, in human history, these secession movements and rebellions, you don't always have to win in order to win independence. That is, they didn't necessarily have to win militarily, but just hold out, wear the, wear the North down, right. lead mm -hmm. the enemy as it comes in. And, and so there was, a, there was good reason to think that sooner or later that Europe would buckle and that, uh, that they would need cotton, that there would be a cotton famine in, in the... Uh, in England and in France and Belgium, and that there would be tremendous pressure, not just for profit, but also fear of social unrest in Europe that would force the governments there to intervene in some way, maybe right. not militarily, mm -hmm. but to mediate a peace, to bring an end to the war. And so the South was confident that they would, that they would prevail. Right. It's, when I teach this, it's uh, you know, it's sometimes typical to put up sort of like a the balance sheet of the war at the beginning, and you know, in so many ways, the North seems to have all these advantages. But of course, at the time, all the experts thought that the South couldn't lose because, as you said, it in order to quote unquote win, it really had to survive. It didn't actually need to do anything where the North had to conquer and occupy a massive and extremely diverse territory. And it just seemed like, you know, experts, I think the, the Duke of Wellington, I believe, was still alive. And he said, you know, there's, there's no way that the North can do this. So, yeah, it, 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 it certainly looks different. You know, so the South originally has this very compelling argument. But on the other hand, you, are, you, you observe that the way you sort of assess the relative strengths and weaknesses of the, uh, the, the, the diplomatic apparatus that the North and South have, and also simply the, the, the personnel mm -hmm. they have, are very, very different in quality. And I yeah. wonder if you could just say something about how you uh, measure the quality of the, the people that the Union and the Confederacy had as the, you know, both the official and unofficial diplomats. Well, it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. You, you have most of these diplomats on both sides were appointed for political reasons. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, Lincoln wants to put William Dayton in England. And <laughs> right. Seward says, no, uh, put him someplace else. But Lincoln feels he owes him or something and uh, because he had been a Republican vice presidential candidate before and they needed New Jersey votes in the next election. <laughs> Dayton then wound up in Paris. He couldn't speak a word of French and, and never even tried. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, on on the Confederate side, a lot of historians, and beginning with Frank Owsley, who wrote this magnificent 1930s pioneering work on King Cotton diplomacy, he was one who 
kind of blame the messengers and so we get an image of the confederate envoys as being kind of slovenly tobacco chewing crude <laughs> violent of uh, men who offended all the foreigners but i think that's a little bit unfair uh, true but unfair if yeah i mean uh, you do have to deal with yancey i mean yancey yeah. meets he conforms to that caricature absolutely yeah he's 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 a he's a uh, an easy target for those kinds of accusations <laughs> and james mason was was not he didn't quite cut the figure as a diplomat in in London. They all said to mm-hmm. go around and tell him not to spit. Uh, he, he chewed tobacco constantly and, <laughs> and spit. And uh, he he was he was uh, he was not impressive to some. But they had also uh, the Confederacy some really sharp envoys. And John Slidell was one of them. Slidell was fluent in French. He had married a French Creole woman in Louisiana. He spoke French at home. He was an experienced, seasoned uh, diplomat from the days of the Mexican War. Remember, Slidell was the one who went to Mexico before the Polk declared war. And he was just a cunning diplomat who who knew how to operate in the court. He he and his wife and his beautiful daughters kind of worked their way in their circles of French society. He liked to gamble and spent a lot of time at the casino. And above all, Slidell, I learned, had a mole inside the foreign office in Mm -hmm. Paris. So he knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. And that was a great advantage. Slidell was was pretty, uh, was was a clever diplomat uh, and certainly uh, superior to William Dayton. But uh, the advantages that the Union had was that they had this whole apparatus of diplomacy, secretaries, legations, offices everywhere, and uh, experienced diplomats, once they cleaned out a lot of the Confederate sympathizers, um, people who could speak the language and who could read the newspapers and who could monitor, who could serve as the eyes and ears of the Union. And Seward, I think, deserves uh, I believe that, that pub, what we call public diplomacy, they didn't use mm-hmm. that term then, is really invented during the Civil War. And not just by the Union, uh, the Confederacy also employed uh, these soft power public diplomacy uh, measures. But Seward was very interested in getting at public opinion. And I think he, you know, he was a politician. They often say politics and diplomacy don't mix, but they do. Seward really knew uh, the, uh, and understood the importance of public opinion. And this was uh, uh, something that he instructed all his diplomats to report on. Tell us what they're thinking. Tell us. And so in all of the dispatches coming back to Washington, you see these extensive reports on what each newspaper is saying about this battle or this uh, edict or um, whatever new developments there are. So that, that was that was useful. Yeah, and, and one of the places you see this, and especially the sort of unofficial apparatus that the union has going for it, is in the uh, the, the, so, the so-called Trent affair, mm. which was almost a complete disaster yeah. for the union. And but uh, I, I guess at the end, the union was able to escape this really with its with its image intact, and to a large extent, this was due to uh, you know individuals, people like Bigelow and. Uh, Weed, yes. who were able to, uh, who knew what they were doing. Can you, so, can you say just just how did the Lincoln administration get out from under this this looming disaster that it could have become? This here was a the the Trent affair is you know if nothing else about the international dimensions of the Civil War gets into the textbook stories. There's right. always at least a little sidebar about the Trent affair because here it was in November December of 1861, Britain and the United States came to the very brink of war. And the press in London was beating the drums for war because of this insult to the flag. The Union, you recall, uh, had apprehended the Confederate envoys Slidell and Mason on a British uh, steamship, uh, a mail ship, and this was an illegal affront and a violation of British sovereignty, so they claimed. And so it was a it was a 
big uh, international affair. And uh, at this time, and this was by coincidence, Seward had sent over this troop of people who were to be speakers and who were to work the press. And uh, the informal head of this delegation was Thurlow Weed, and with him was this Catholic priest, uh, um, Bishop Hugh, and uh, McIlvain, an Episcopalian uh, priest who uh, also went along to Seward seemed to be interested in using the pulpit uh, as well as the, the press to appeal mm-hmm. to European public opinion, and he seemed to sense that a Catholic opinion would be very important in France, in Ireland, and in the British Isles, and in um, uh, in the Vatican itself. And so Hughes was there. But uh, uh, already in Paris was this man who looms very large in my story, and that is John Bigelow. Uh, he was officially the consul to Paris, uh, but he was unofficially there to kind of back up William Dayton, and uh, and he he virtually ran the office, ran the legation, and made foreign policy, or at least uh, uh, steered foreign policy in Paris and over much of Europe. Was a very important figure. Bigelow was a an old newspaper veteran. He was a political operative. Had become important to the Republican Party in the 1850s, and um, and was told that his his job was to manage the press and to help put the public mind of France in the right direction. And it's that kind of language that uh, you know, they they used that uh, kind of veils a whole program in which Bigelow would work with intellectuals, with publishers, with, uh, with uh, journalists to try right. to get the Union story told, or better yet, get them to tell it. So the, this, this group, Weed and Company, arrived just as the Trent Affair is breaking in the news in London and Paris. And uh, Bigelow decides, also in the group, was um, Winfield Scott, the retired... <laughs> personal mission of his own. It's not entirely. Oh, can I interrupt you for? Yeah. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Sure. For about the last ten seconds, uh, there was a bit of chop that I think is going to not come through. Okay. It, it was exactly when you began talking about Winfield Scott. Mm-hmm. So can you start from? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can, can, can you start That's from okay. that point again, please? One of this troop with Weed and, and Hughes and McIlvain was Winfield Scott, who uh, the story is told that he just kind of came along on the same boat. But I think he was there with a purpose on his own kind of personal and secret diplomatic mission, informal diplomacy, of course. Bigelow decides that the way to defuse this Trent affair is to have a letter written by Scott placed in the newspapers saying that surely this is not Union policy to apprehend uh, uh, enemy envoys uh, on board the, the Trent, but uh, it and the impulsive act of some ambitious naval officer. And so Scott writes this letter supposedly to a friend. It's published the next day in Paris and London. Uh, actually, Scott signed the letter, I should add. Bigelow is the one who, who actually wrote it and mm-hmm. persuaded mm-hmm. Scott to sign his name to it. And it had a magical effect because all of a sudden, the United States, which... Uh, a lot of Europeans thought was awfully brash and, and overreaching, <laughs> now seemed to be kind of apologizing through a voice that was known and respected in Europe, that of, of Winfield Scott. Weed, in the meantime, takes copies of the letter over to uh, London and begins working kind of the inner circles of government and uh, uh, is invited to meet Lord John Russell, uh, Earl Russell, the foreign secretary, at home privately uh, outside of London. And that was a, a wonderful story in the kind of informal nuances of this dance of diplomacy. 
You want me to tell that story? Sure. I, I also like, I mean, just apropos of your mention of Russell, there are some great stories. Apparently, Russell, whenever he wants to deliver bad news or, or, or just something sort of unofficial, he, he brings people to his house. That's right. Yeah. Uh, he, does, he does this to Southern diplomats a lot because he can't, they can't be seen in his office, which would be a, a diplomatic uh, yes. to do. Yes. Uh, so, I, yeah, but please go ahead and tell the story. Yeah, there's a lot of important diplomacy that takes place outside the official circles. And, uh, yeah, so this is a way of doing diplomacy, but it's it's unofficial. So, so Reed comes out to his, his house uh, overlooking London, and uh, they have a little talk man-to-man before lunch. And Russell was cold as ice, really severe. Both sides, it's interesting, thought that he was against them. And they were right. You know, he was kind of one who wished (laughs) the worst for the United States and uh, never would smile and just let people kind of talk and talk. But he was upset about this Trent affair. He let Weed know it. Weed challenged him, reminded him about how many Americans were apprehended at sea uh, before the War of 1812, and and then began to soften up the old guy and, and talked about their <laughs> their common Whig tradition and how they, on both sides of the Atlantic, had shared this common vision of uh, of. Uh, uh, of uh, reform and uh, good government, and and then uh, uh, Russell said, "All right, well, um, uh, what do we need to do?" And and Reed says, "Why don't you devise some kind of issue, some demand, and and give us some kind of face-saving exit from this? I'm sure that the government doesn't want to keep these men, uh, but that you know they don't want to concede the entire legal point here and." Uh, Sure enough, uh, you know, they, they have lunch, and uh, uh, after lunch, Reed sees Russell talk with his wife, and then his wife comes over, the two of them come over and say, we'd like you to take a, a little walk with uh, Lady Russell uh, in the <laughs> gardens, and they, they go out into the gardens, and there's a, a wonderful, one of these kind of enigmatic moments where... Uh, Weed notices a little mound, and she says, uh, go up on it. And she says, you are now standing where King Henry VIII stood to watch the signal from the Tower of London before his wife, Anne Boleyn, was beheaded. <laughs> what does this mean? Well, as they go on a little bit in their walk, uh, she says, you know, we women are not supposed to see or hear things, but we do. And I want you to know that the Queen has taken a great interest in this incident, something to do with some uh, rebel agents being taken off a ship. She pretends ignorance of the incident. But I want you to know that the Queen is very concerned that our two nations not go to war. And it's one of these signals that we understands Russell to be telling him through his wife that there's not going to be a war. And he goes back for his lunch with uh, Russell, sure that this little operation in public diplomacy, not public diplomacy, but kind of private and unofficial Mm -hmm. diplomacy, Mm -hmm. has worked. And uh, the the bomb is diffused, of course, back in in America. uh, Lincoln, Seward were debating what to do about the Trent affair. And as we on Christmas Day, uh, with letters from England from John Bright, one of the great friends of the Union, and Richard Cobden, Lincoln decided one war at a time will yeah. will <laughs> right. Um, just to change focus a little bit um, from diplomacy to the larger sort of geopolitical situation, uh, you know, some European powers uh, saw the American Civil War as an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, specifically as an opportunity to uh, ign- you know, to uh, sort of recognize that for a little while anyway, the Monroe Doctrine would be suspended or at least not it wouldn't, could not be enforced. Yeah. So, you know, which European powers took advantage of the Civil War to uh, to come back to the Western Hemisphere and, and what was on their minds? You know, almost immediately, once once it was clear that this was going to be a protracted war the European great powers to make plans. And it's not just France, but France, Spain, Britain, um, and 
and others are in on this, but those three great powers, each with a, a pretty good navy and large army and powerful economy to support war, they meet in London at the end of October and devise this plan to invade Mexico. The pretense is over the recovery of foreign debts to uh, European investors. But it's very clear that France has an idea of toppling the Republican regime of under Benito Juarez and of installing a European monarch and of rolling back the whole expansion of Republicanism in the New World and establishing, according to Napoleon III's grand design, a Latin Catholic empire that would expand beyond Mexico to all of South America and then make alliance with the empire of Brazil. So it was a, a real deep plan that a lot of historians have kind of dismissed as this clownish dream of Napoleon <laughs> III, but um, mm -hmm. there were armies and men and governments toppled, and the world would have looked very different if the Union had not won and if this grand design had gone through as planned. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you make the case that... Uh as you just said, the world would have looked very different. But it, it seems like uh, some of the people who who made that observation or who realized that, and of course Lincoln is consistent about this, but it's foreign observers, you know, friends of republicanism, yes. uh, who who saw this very clearly, yes, uh, almost from the very beginning. And, and you make the case that some of these foreign observers, uh, frustrated by the union's either failure or uh, inability to make a clear case for uh, for, for the morality of, of, of their side in the Civil War yes. took it upon, took it upon themselves yes to make the case that's, that's uh, and right. it, it, yeah. it, in the process they ended up telling Americans you know what they thought the war was about so who were some of the most important most interesting foreign figures who saw the implications of the American Civil War even more quickly than some Americans did and how successful were they at making the union case abroad? Yeah, this this is you know the the diplomatic history of the war has been told and told very well. Howard Jones came out with his book Blue and Gray Diplomacy just as I was beginning my book, and um, I'm no diplomatic historian. Uh, if if uh, I I tell the story of diplomacy, and I, we've talked about it some here already, but um, this is really a my book is a about the contest in public diplomacy mm -hmm. or for public opinion. And uh, the Union was at first trying to make its case just on the right to national self-preservation, that this is a yeah. rebellion, a domestic insurrection, and that every government, every nation has the right to suppress rebellions within its borders, and that therefore this is not a war. This is not a civil war. This is not an international war. It is a rebellion, um, and therefore off limits to any foreign powers. And they warned that any government, foreign government, that did anything to aid this rebellion would be considered uh, hostile to the United States. That would be an act of war. We will wrap the world in flames, William Seward would bluster in Washington, often puffing on his cigar in front of you know, uh, journalists and diplomats that he knew would tell this story. It was repeated again and again. He would use that, that metaphor of wrapping the world in flames, setting the world on fire. Uh, it will be a war of the world, he said, a war of conscience. So it's, uh, the, the Union had put itself in this kind of almost imperialist kind of stance as opposed to the, the Southern appeal to liberal nationalism and the right to self-government. And my book is about to turn from that, uh, not away from that necessarily, but toward uh, another argument that is informed by these foreign observers. And what I did, I have, I have one chapter called Foreign Translations, and I, I was interested right. in mm -hmm. uh, the... Some of them are English uh, or writing in English, so they didn't actually need to be translated literally. Some were French voices that uh, that did need to be translated. But my point is, is that 
foreigners were interpreting the war and what it meant. And, and they often did so by interpreting how it related to them. And they began to see the American war as a kind of proxy war, a distant contest in what had been a long historic battle between the forces of republicanism, self-government, um, emancipation, uh, emancipation of slaves, of course, but emancipation of labor, too, as Karl Marx would point out. And so mm -hmm. this grand kind of epic battle was taking place uh, now across the Atlantic, but it was their war, too. It was their contest and part of the long historic struggle that went back to the French Revolution. And many of these observers were, uh, as we said, with the Union supporters that we've been focusing on for the last few minutes, but they were just enormously frustrated by that what they saw as the Union's failure to seize the opportunity of the Civil War to end slavery. Yes. Do you, do you think they appreciated the Lincoln administration's very delicate balancing act uh, to, you know, at the one time to hold together the, 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 the in some ways the fragile Union coalition, especially around the border states, or did they think that the, the that the Lincoln administration simply was overstating the uh, the limitations it was under? I think they, I think Europeans were just puzzled by why an elected president couldn't just do what he was elected <laughs> to do. This was the anti-slavery party. And, and many foreigners thought, well, they've won. Uh, they won the election, and now they control the army. And yeah. You just put down the rebellion, and you destroy slavery. And they couldn't understand it. And all of this, I mean, it is partly it was because, of course, Lincoln was believed in the rule of law. He was a Democrat, I mean, a small-D Democrat, and, he, and yeah. he, mm -hmm. he did not believe that he was a... Uh, he was not an emperor, and I think Europeans had a little trouble understanding that. Karl Marx was one who understood the subtlety of Lincoln's messages and, and valued the, the nuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. He said, uh, he's often quoted as saying that Lincoln issues these, uh, these, these grand edicts as though a summons from one lawyer to another. Right. <laughs> a lot of historians have read that as a put-down of Lincoln, but it's not. Uh, Marx is admiring his genius in, in veiling these revolutionary policies in what are kind of dry, uh, amoral edicts. But uh, yes, many, many were frustrated with Lincoln um, before and after the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, yeah, uh, especially before, and uh, but others just decided whatever they say, this is about slavery. Of course, mm -hmm. it is. and so they yeah. kind of they kind of wrote and interpreted the war as as a contest between not just slavery and free labor, but between self rule, liberty, popular sovereignty, and the forces of aristocracy. So right. that that larger that larger contest kind of enveloped this the the slavery question for them, right? And of course, they, they uh, Frederick Douglass, of course, was somebody else who saw right away that this whatever the Union said, this was really about slavery, and they would they would figure that out sooner or later. Yes, but it also seems to me that here's an example about where the the South simply has an easier case to make a more a more you know, intuitively graspable case that we are fighting for our independence all, all we want is to be left alone and everybody you know republican peoples around the world can understand that but yes. the union is stuck with making this very technical case that says well you, we might want to abolish slavery but we have a constitution and the constitution sets limits about what the president can do that, that very quickly gets boring among yes. other things yes. it's just yeah it's just not very exciting uninspired uh, yes. case right yes. exactly yeah and yeah this was Garibaldi's reaction at the beginning of the book, you know, where he says, you're not going to destroy slavery? If, if, <laughs> if this is not about the emancipation of the slaves, then it's just a civil war. Right. It will be of no interest to the rest of the world. It's just, just your own quarrel. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, eventually, uh, the Confederacy does, uh, I don't know if it's, and you can address why you think it does, but you know, the Confederacy does begin to change its tune, uh, beginning with this very liberal 
message about self-determination, it becomes a very conservative yeah. message eventually. Uh, you talk about the so-called Latin strategy. Um, yeah. Do you think that the South, the Confederacy, was simply driven to frustration by Great Britain and France's reluctance to commit themselves? or were there, So I, I would like you to, first of all, describe the conservative turn that Confederate public and to a lesser extent, private diplomacy takes, especially the, the 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 public. And why do you think they did that? Yeah, the the the, the two sides, I, I said, begin with this: you know, the Confederacy kind of uh, adopting this liberal message of, of the right to self-government, and the Union with this, you know, right to self-preservation and to put down dissident rebellions within its boundaries. A, a, a conservative argument. Um, this big shift as we go into the uh, second year of war, and and partly it's you know it's the rhetoric, it's the uh, of, of of both sides, and there is the the Confederacy begins to align itself with the conservative and anti-democratic values of European mm-hmm. leaders, and so they they are asking for the right to self-government, but also saying we are rebelling against this extreme egalitarian democracy that has run amok in the north that is being polluted by the hordes of European immigrants and that (laughs) we are instead an Anglo-Saxon or later with the French they would talk about an (laughs) Anglo-Norman elite uh, and that that we are the best people of the society and we are going to, to some of them repudiated republicanism altogether. I have uh, uh, some material in there about their pro-monarchist leanings. Right. Mm-hmm. The point is they were they were aligning themselves with the aristocracy and soon also with the Catholic Church. And that was an interesting and I think less familiar side of Confederate diplomacy that I uh, spent some time describing. Right, right. Uh, do you think, though, that the, the Confederacy was driven to this strategy out of just frustration that nothing was happening, that the war was starting to go badly, and that they needed a, a change in, uh, in, in tactics? Yeah. Early on, they realized that whatever Lincoln said about slavery and whatever they say about slavery, that there's just a kind of stubborn, they called it, anti-slavery sentiment uh, in Britain and in France. These were the two <laughs> right. main players. And that, uh, you know, uh, William Yancey wrote home to his brother, they have read Uncle Tom's Cabin and they believe it. <laughs> and and that the, the, the French just considered slavery kind of beneath discussion, that it was just wrong and that uh, even the aristocrats had no, had no interest in defending slavery. And they, they felt that was an obstacle. So they now begin to launch their own public diplomacy program. I won't call it propaganda because that always sounds kind of false and, and misleading, but mm-hmm. public diplomacy aimed at, as they put it, educating the public mind. And Edwin de Leon from Columbia, South Carolina, yeah. by the way, was one of the, the chief propagandists. There I go again. Um, but he was responsible for he had a large purse and and um, and and freedom to do all he could to manage the press, bribe the press. He he got a lot of editors and journalists on his payroll, and to tell the Southern story. And then he also published his own pamphlet in French, mm-hmm. um, not very good French, according to one of his critics. Right. Yeah, but about the truth about the Confederate states. And this included a a lengthy defense of Southern slavery as a paternalistic, benign, domestic institution, um, quite unlike the kind of slavery that had been practiced in Haiti or in other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. and that that the slaves were happy and that the South was not concerned with them rising up against their masters, and so on and so on. Very familiar to students of American history, but this was now being propagated abroad. And in London, 
they also had uh, the Confederacy had also dispatched uh, a, a young man, brilliant uh, Confederate uh, diplomatist by the name of Henry Holtz, born in Switzerland, uh, mm-hmm. to Mobile. He was a collaborator with Josiah Knott, the famous uh, scientist, anthropologist, I think he right. fashioned himself, uh, and one of the pioneers in scientific racism. Holtz was interested, instead of shunning the slavery debate, of really embracing the idea of the South as a modern uh, model of white supremacy. And he was particularly interested in the ideas of Arthur Gobineau, the pioneer in scientific racism, mm-hmm. French uh, writer, who had written the, an essay on the, inequality, the inequality of humankind. And it was a, a very important piece. He, he Henry Holtz, had translated it into English, uh, and now Holtz Listium in the Confederate cause, and also through his newspaper, The Index, which was published weekly in London, uh, tried to transmit these ideas that the South was creating a society that was based on these now proven scientific principles Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. racial inequality and white supremacy. And so, uh, again, they were kind of, they were were shifting in their... In their public diplomacy, in their message to the world, and uh, and and also trying to to control the message—that is, to tell the story themselves. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They had, uh, maybe about twenty years uh, too uh, you know uh, too early. Maybe that that argument would have worked better in the during the scramble for Africa. Yeah. Uh, with with King Leopold and all that. Maybe that, but they didn't seem to have much success with that pro-slavery argument, which, uh, which, as you said, is familiar to Americans, but would have been very uh, new to Europeans. It was still too close to the, there was still a a living memory of the abolitionist camp in France and in Britain. Uh, And to think of slavery as anything but a cruel, inhuman, and unchristian institution, that was hard even for moderate and conservative Europeans to swallow. Yeah. Uh, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about both uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and its evolution in, in European thinking and also uh, Confederate uh, c- considerations about emancipation arming slaves. Yeah. Uh, to what extent was the Emancipation Proclamation aimed at European audiences? And, you know, one, I think one of the surprising things that readers will find in your book is about how sort of negatively it was uh, – was received, especially given what they saw as the implicit uh, invitation uh, to a bloody slave rebellion. Yes. Yes. Um, The Emancipation Proclamation, of course, had a great, it was domestic policy, but it was also foreign policy. And the whole slavery question was absolutely central to Union and Confederate slavery uh, foreign policy. So Lincoln, uh, early on in in early 1862, uh, actually in late 1861, Carl Schurz, the, the German 48er, revolutionary, radical, Republican, uh, he was appointed as a, as a kind of political reward for his help with the election to the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Madrid. Uh, Schurz was not, uh, uh, he was a good diplomat, but he was not happy in Madrid. Uh, <laughs> But he he spent his time reading uh, European newspapers, talking with people, and taking the pulse of European public opinion, just as Seward had instructed him. And he wrote back to Seward and said, people here, the governments of Europe are wishing the worst for us. They want democracy to fail. But the liberal public is waiting for this to become a war of emancipation. Don't give up. This is our strongest moral asset. Seward told him to mind his own business and to uh, <laughs> uh, 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 be quiet. Shores resigned. He came back. He rushed from New York down to Washington, uh, 
came into the oh, White yes. House. It's a great story. <laughs> uh, Lincoln welcomed him. He was afraid that Lincoln would be furious with him because he had to fight so hard to get him placed in this this embassy, this revolutionary in Catholic Spain. Um, but instead, Lincoln welcomed him. They sat down and they talked, and and Sewers, without knowing whether. Lincoln had read his dispatches, began to explain his theory about the importance of emancipation to foreign policy. And at the end, Lincoln paused as though he'd been thinking about it all along and said, I think you're right. You must be right. There is no nation that will make war against us once this becomes a war between freedom and slavery. But he told Shores, you may be ready, and the Europeans might be ready, the European public, but we're not. We have to move this. And he actually invited Shores to criticize his policy. And Shores came out of that meeting realizing that Lincoln actually wanted his critics on the left, the radicals, mm -hmm. to push him toward emancipation. And that, of course, would come... Um, in in my win uh, of 1862, uh, another six months when Lincoln finally decided we're going to make this about emancipation, we're going to um, we're going to uh, use this as a, a presidential edict, and uh, then of course in the in the cabinet, Seward, who's head of foreign policy and quite uh, uh, in control of that tells Lincoln that if you issue this edict, it will, instead of uh, discouraging the Europeans from intervention, it will encourage them because they will fear servile insurrection, they, mm -hmm. will, they will fear racial upheaval, and a complete destruction of the cotton market in the United States. And so there was a kind of a debate going on here between the voice of Schur, the voice of Seward, and Lincoln decides first to postpone it uh, on Seward's advice until a battle that could be claimed as a victory. That came in Antietam in September, and then he issued it. And the first thing that Lincoln did after he signed that was to give it to Seward and said, I want this published and sent to every legation around the world. Mm -hmm. so it was very much foreign policy, whatever else it was, it was foreign policy in Lincoln's mind yeah. and in Seward's mind. Now, to what extent do you think that the new war aim, the new grand strategy to pursue an emancipationist war, to what extent did that actually restrain European powers from recognizing the Confederacy, or that were they ultimately constrained by traditional great power considerations, that if we go to war, with, if we intervene, it means war with the United States? Well, the, the, the usual story is that the Emancipation Proclamation completely ended any threat of foreign intervention, but that, that is not true. The, the British and the French were deep into a scheme to intervene, and it, it would happen this way. They would offer mediation, and mm -hmm. they, would, they would combine with, they hoped, uh, Russia and Austria and Belgium and other so a multilateral proposal that they mediate peace and set up a, this multilateral commission if the North refused then Palmerston told Russell uh, in, uh, in in the British cabinet then we will recognize the South and we'll, we will end the war and that began in September just as Lincoln was devising this and waiting for the Emancipation Proclamation. The, the, the machinery was in toward a European intervention. Now, we all like to think that Antietam came, and then the Emancipation Proclamation came, and that ended the threat. But in mm -hmm. fact, it, that wasn't yet. Uh, it's Garibaldi to the rescue. Garibaldi, <laughs> down in, in the south of Italy, has begun this march on Rome, the king sends his troops down to arrest him, and on this uh, site at Aspromonte, Garibaldi is wounded, imprisoned, and some think that he's going to be sentenced to death. 
and it creates a huge uproar across Europe. And the French cabinet is shaken up. Uh, Napoleon III's foreign secretary has to resign. It's a complicated story, but the French were defending Rome against Garibaldi. And this Mm -hmm. created Mm -hmm. a crisis in the government. And the French could not join the British. And the British didn't want to go it alone. No European country wanted to get into a war alone Mm -hmm. with the United States. And so... uh, and at the same time, Garibaldi, from his hospital bed in prison, writes this letter to the English nation and proclaims the Union, uh, calls on Britain to defend its American daughter, to join them in their <laughs> fight for the emancipation of the slaves. And you look at the date, and you think, ah, oh, Garibaldi must know about the Emancipation Proclamation, but it was written on September 28th before the news of the of Lincoln's emancipation even arrived. So it's it's Garibaldi's emancipation proclamation that seems to <laughs> kind of rock the European world. Yeah. But even after that the the um the European governments continue to contemplate some kind of mediation and interference. And uh the story is not over yet. Press in Europe is lambasting Britain uh, uh Lincoln for this invitation to servile insurrection. Seward was right. Seward predicted that Europe would would react against emancipation. And at least reading the press, Seward was right. They were they were comparing um, <laughs> Lincoln to Nana Sahib, the the leader of the Sepoy mutiny in India, um, who was you know, regarded in Britain as this murderous leader, and uh, and and otherwise just denouncing this as a really barbarous ploy to try to turn the slaves against their masters in the South, and it's not until after the New Year, when the Emancipation Proclamation finally goes into effect that the public begins to respond, and particularly the workers of England. In Elsewhere in Europe, they were not free to meet and to express themselves right. politically. But in Britain, they could, and they did. And what you see in January, February, March is just this explosion of public meetings, resolutions. And the Emancipation Society there in Britain, finding that a lot of the press was kind of biased against the Union, and biased against this emancipation edict, they kind of took it into their own hands to have these meetings and then publish resolutions and then kind of make their own news, if you will. And <laughs> it really spread, it yeah. rippled across Europe. Uh, the uh, French reformers and emancipationists stood up and expressed their solidarity with the British, and uh, the tide had changed. And it really, public opinion now had its war against mm-hmm. slavery. Now yeah. it was a war not just for liberty and self-government by the people. It was a war to destroy slavery and the slaveholding aristocracy that rested on slavery. Right. Well, we've been on the air for a long time, but I, I do want to uh, ask you one more question uh, about the, the coda to the book, in which you describe uh, uh, the, the interesting history of what we know as the Statue of Liberty, uh, more formally called uh, Liberty Enlightening the World, uh, which had its conception in the American Civil War and in the, the fight against aristocracy, the fight to end slavery. But you know, th- the meaning of that statue has changed, and it changed by the time that it was erected in 1886. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about how, how that how the American understanding of the Statue of Liberty changed and what that had to do with larger changes in the way that Americans remembered the Civil War? That's a that's a wonderful question. I'd love to talk about that. You know, that that is our greatest Civil War monument. Adam Gottnick in the New Yorker uh, last year did a, a piece on on the Statue of Liberty as as a Civil War monument. You know at at Liberty's feet are the broken chains of slavery. And, uh, of course, it was the, the idea was first born in that summer of 1865. And it was, it was the, in the mind of 
Edouard Laboulaye, who was one of Bigelow's uh, uh, voices for union and, uh, and liberty during the war. And he had this idea of a monument of, uh, for, uh, for, for liberty and for the, the Franco-American solidarity and support of republicanism. And, of course, it took them 20 years before it was finally installed right. in New York Harbor. In the meantime, uh, the French now had recovered republicanism. The Third Republic was proclaimed in 1870, and Napoleon had been deposed, and after a... Uh, um, uh, a big violent revolution in the Paris Commune. Now they were on the path to republicanism, and, and now the statue was constructed. I, I have a picture at the end of the book of liberty, yeah. covered, uh, surrounded by scaffolding, rising above the streets of Paris. But by this time, when it was finally installed in New York, I think Americans wanted to forget about that war and the emancipation. David Blight talks about the, the yep. reconciliation that took place. And it conveniently, it seemed, uh, Emma Lazarus's famous poem about um, the, uh, the huddled masses yearning to be, breathe free gave another narrative to that statue as a kind of American liberty welcoming the refugees from oppression from Europe instead of enlightening the world. And, uh, of course, the, one of the main ideas that Laboulaye and Bartholdi, the artist, had was that liberty was not a national, it was not the intellectual property of the United States. This was mm -hmm. a transnational idea. And it's liberty facing the world, facing the across the Atlantic and, and striding toward it. And that uh, that this was something, this was the cause of all nations, the cause of all mankind, and that it was something uh, not just American and not just French, but something that all humans aspired to. This was the original narrative. Right, and it's a it's a wonderful way uh, to it's to end the book. It really just it's it's a uh, it really encapsulates, as you said, the cause of all nations. Well, uh, Don Doyle, I want to thank you for spending a little more than an hour with us here at New Books in American Studies. Well, I very much, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. So once again, we have been talking with Don Doyle. He is the author of The Cause of All Nations: An International History of the American Civil War published this year, 2015, from Basic Books. And you'll see a link to this on the page, and it will take you right to Amazon.com and uh, throw some money to Professor Doyle. Uh, he certainly deserves it. Uh, so once again, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the host of New Books in American Studies, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>